I'm Jason Notoris, and this is SPE Talks to Shauna Noonan. Welcome to the SPE Podcast. This month, doing things a little differently, we are remote. I'm set up in a small space in my house. Shauna, we have you on the phone. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you. Your April column is dedicated to technology evaluation. It's an area that you've spent a majority of your career, and I do want to get into that in a moment, but first I just have to ask, how are you? Well, doing as well as can be expected under these conditions. Um, I have been working from home since March 12th. I have a daughter who's a senior in high school who's pretty bummed about having a lot of her final year fun activities canceled and being stuck in a home with her mother. (laughs) And then again, I got two dogs that are extremely happy that they're getting walked all the time. So we're doing as best as we can. We're staying safe. And that's the, that's, that's the priority here. Before we get into April's column, I wanted to give a quick reminder that SPE has an app. You can get access to One Petro, the latest technical content from SPE publications. I've got the app on my smartphone. It's a great way to stay connected while we're all living in this new normal right now. It's easy to access, easy to use. It's available both in the App Store and Google Play. Just search SPE International and download today. Welcome back. We're with 2020 SPE President Shauna Noonan. And while we are recording this podcast episode in April, many reference points in the column that you wrote actually came from mid-February. And that's before the whole pandemic declaration and work from home mandates came into place. Still, much of this is very applicable to our current conditions because we are being asked in many cases to embrace technology evaluation and to be more strategic in this arena. I agree, Jason. The column is uh, still very much relevant, but as we go through, I'll just do some updates or caveats to our curtain situation. And again, a lot of people don't realize that when uh, the presidents write their columns, we're having to submit them six to eight weeks in advance because of the print version of JPT and meeting the deadlines with the printers and with shipping. So this this topic was very much on my mind in February, um, but uh, who knew what was uh, going to be occurring in the months ahead? But again, I, I'm, I, I'm still very excited uh, about this topic because it's something I'm extremely passionate about. And you've already mentioned that I've done a good part of my career in technology evaluation. And so it's important as we're dealing with the economic and pandemic situation right now that we can still uh well we still can and should not lose focus on the technical advancements and i really like how you do break down the technology evaluation because you set it up by asking yourself two questions let's go ahead and discuss that the subject of my column is a compilation of the last several decades of my career, not only doing technology evaluation, but also dealing with weekly phone calls by young engineers or inventors who have discovered the next best thing, the silver bullet, something that's going to revolutionize our industry. And over time, I tend to ask 
two questions right off the bat. One is, do, do I or do you even need this new technology? And do you understand the root cause of your issue enough to determine if applying existing technology and accepted practices cannot solve it? And to be honest, probably about 90% of the time, the root cause can be solved just by applying existing technology in the right way. And I don't mean to be critical. Um, I've always been critical for innovation. I've always been a champion for innovation and technology development. But when you can already solve it cheaply by just applying the fundamentals in a correct way, a lot of time, a new tool or method is not even not even needed. And I do like that because those are two questions that are at, at the root of it, simple for the most part. They can be asked across disciplines, across industries even. One, do I need this new technology? And two, do I understand the root cause of the problem well enough to determine if applying existing technology and accepted practices cannot solve it? So there's where we're starting. But for context, go ahead and provide me an example. Okay. Well, being an artificial engineer, most of my examples do come from the artificialist side, but again, they're relevant across most disciplines. So let's start with the example that I gave in my column uh, with the downhole rod reciprocating pump. And by the way, uh, this type of pump is called two different ways in the industry. It's been referred to as a rod pump and a bean pump. And just a side note, the term uh, bean pump is pretty much a pet peeve of mine because the bean refers to the surface unit, which is a walking bean, but your downhole pump may not be driven by a bean unit. So calling that downhole pump a bean pump is kind of like nails on a chalkboard to me. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, rod pump technology has been around for over a century. And for pretty much most of that time, the design practices determining the optimal tolerance between the downhole plunger and barrel were basically just a bunch of theoretical equations and a lot of used uh, rules of thumb. It got to be a point where uh, some of the people in the industry were couldn't even remember how where those rules of thumb came from, which is not a good sign. But basically, if that opening, that tolerance uh, was too large, it was thought that there'd be a lot of fluid slippage, slippage, and then you'd have really poor efficiency of the pump. And then going the other way, if it was going to be too tight of a tolerance, the thought was it would lead to a lot of rod buckling and inability to handle uh, particulates such as sand. And scale was also an issue too. So as an industry, we typically erred on the side of caution towards going tire tolerances because oh no, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, have poor pump efficiency. And so what happened was a lot of gadgets and accessories were developed to counter the issues caused by a really tight design philosophy. But it wasn't until the late 1990s when a group of operators in the Permian Basin really began to question these equations and these rules of thumb and really, you know, quantify is are, are we concerned about something that's really not there? But keep in mind, this was also at a time now where instrumentation 
uh, could be accurate and um, uh, the sample size at a fast enough rate that we could actually start doing uh, experiments and actually quantifying this. And so this was a case of this consortium doing this research at Texas Tech to really understand the dynamics of the fluid slippage between the plunger and barrel. And they did it under a variety of conditions, uh, fluid viscosity uh, with gas. And over time, they were able to develop a new equation, which was later named the Patterson equation after my mentor, John Patterson. And they proved that these larger tolerances didn't lead to all this slippage that people had been thinking they've been avoiding for years. And this, this understanding created a huge wave of um, positive impact in the industry once they published this information. Because now these problems that had incurred due to the tighter tolerances, now that we open them up, the pumps could uh, handle sand better. We didn't have a lot of rod failures collectively. Just by doing this one simple design process from now understanding the fundamentals, it is hugely increased uh, rod pump run lives uh, uh, globally. A collaboration, spending a bit of time and some money doing some research, what they gained in improved run lives was well, well beyond their uh, initial investment. And it sounds like, too, one of the great benefactors of this is the fact that it was just publicized so globally it did have an impact. Yes. And it's- Again, I'm an artificialist engineer, so I can cite many examples. I spent seven years of my career doing uh, validation testing of high-temp electric submersible pump equipment. And the learning that we had from that, again, far outweighed the benefits that we saw once we applied. And several of my papers were on that testing. There's a reference in my column to an article that Robin Beckworth wrote for JPT in 2014 that gives the entire history of artificial lift. If that's something that you're interested in um, uh, reading, I highly recommend it. It's a really good uh, background and chronology to my discipline. But anyway, on the gas club side, for those senior members like myself who remember the days of the SBE handbook, it was a giant book that was considered the Bible. And it was your reference to anything to do in our industry. And, and the gas lift chapter on that had what was called the universal gas lift design, where you followed this design methodology using the classic Thornhill Craver uh, equation. Uh, this gas lift design would work in any well and unload to bottom. Well, the problem was, again, that was based off of theoretical equations. And another consortium that got started in the 1990s, it was the Valpoformis Clearinghouse. And what they did was really try and understand the fundamentals of flow through a gas valve, not an orifice, but an actual live valve. And what they came up with was unique equations per gas lift model, uh, size, and type that now um, those BPC, if anybody sees in design software for gas valve BPC, that's where it came from. And it totally revolutionized the gas valve industry and actually proved that that 
universal gasless design in that old SP handbook would was actually not the, the best design. In a lot of scenarios, it wouldn't unload. So here's, again, another classic case of understanding the basic fundamentals and doing a whole wave change throughout the industry while still working with the existing technology, but now we could design it better. So then talk to me about the difference between the fundamentals and using fundamentals versus something else that you refer to as bandage technology. So bandage technology is what I use when accessories or tools crop up to help mitigate a situation that doesn't actually address the root cause. Um, you know, and there's many situations where, you know, we, we need a quick fix where bandage technology uh, could be used, but again, it's only a temporary solution. And it, a lot of times the bandage technology, well, you think it comes up with a quick win economically. A lot of times just by doing proper design or operating practices, you didn't even need to buy that tool and then run the risk of it being a weak link in your uh, downhole string as well. So there's a quote that I use in the uh, article from Jack Nicholas. Nicholas. <laughs> uh, of course, the, the, the famous American golf pro. And it says, learn the fundamentals of the game and stick to them. Band-Aid remedies never last. And even though that was a golf quotation, I thought it was very relevant to my column. But now also looking at that quote, I'm very remiss that uh, with our current Stay at work, stay home situation. Uh, I am not looking forward to when I first hit the golf course and doing those initial swings. It is not going to be great. And we do want to remind everyone that you wrote this in February. But with a lot of today's current circumstances, getting the funding for some of these initiatives may be a little bit more difficult. Exactly. We were just starting to see the funding return into research programs since the last downturn. It's sad because I was very fortunate for a good part of my career to work in a time when both operators and manufacturers funded research and testing programs to understand these fundamentals and validate the performance and operating envelope of the technology. And I also want to, I want to give emphasis to that last point because one concern that I have, it's twofold. One is manufacturers commercializing technology without really understanding uh, the operating envelope or using theoretical equations to set their performance ratings. And then on the flip side, I also see operators forcing manufacturers or putting pressure on manufacturers to commercialize techno technology before it's well understood either. So that, that's big issues. But you're right. With this time now, usually funding for any sort of, sort of research programs, that's usually one of the first things that get cut. And then, the, so the question is, in my article, it was, who now is researching the fundamentals? Well, it's now, actually, that's a good question. Now, who is, even through this uh, economic scenario we're in right now, who is still continuing the research program to understand the fundamentals? Or once everything gets corrected, who should it be? 
And more importantly, who who should be funding it? You know, are is the model of the collaborations uh, going to go away? Is there going to be expectations from the operators who uh, that the manufacturers will be doing this, even though we've already squeezed their margins to almost nothing? It it it's a question that I don't have an answer for, but it it definitely needs discussion. And you also mentioned how one of the bigger issues that you're seeing is the apparent lack of interest by some of those operating companies to even try to understand the fundamentals. Again, a whole new layer added with the pandemic and the oil prices right now. Several years ago, I approached an asset manager. I had a research proposal. This was at a time early in the unconventional development where we were piloting all sorts of different completion designs. And... I really wanted to fundamentally understand why one type of completion was outperforming the other. And I was flat out told by this asset manager, he says, I don't care to understand why one outperforms the other. As long as after 90 days of production, there's more oil in the tank. That's all I care to know. Whereas in the back of my mind, you know, I'm thinking, but what happens a year from now or two years from now, is that completion design still going to outperform? Again, we need to understand the fundamentals to get the big picture. Um, so even even within your own company, per se, you can you can have differences of opinions and try and struggle to get support for that research. And when it comes time to do that research, where have you found it most useful to perform that validation testing? Most of mine, because I want to be able to fully in, instrument up uh, a system as well as basically control all the variables except for the ones that I want to run sensitivities on. And so that usually leads me to a lot of the big research facilities. Uh, the one that I've commonly used is Seaford Technology located in Edmonton, Alberta. And... Uh, when I was writing this column, I reached out to their managing director, Dr. Francisco Alanati, just to see what trends they were seeing with the commissioning of research and testing. And again, a little side note, Dr. Francisco Alanati, he actually has a gas lift equation named after him, mainly on gas lift stability. Uh, that was from his time doing gas lift research at uh, University of Tulsa. So again, I... Because a lot of the leadership there really understood artificial lifts, I tended to gravitate towards sending them at sleeper. And anyway, he provided a quote for the article where he stated that, you know, again, keep in mind, this is, I wrote this in mid-February. You know, he said they have noticed a decrease in demand for new technology validation testing. However, what they're starting to see is more work being commissioned to qualify and evaluate technologies with the potential to improve operational efficiency and reliability. Now, again, I'll do a little side note because I mentioned, you know, there, if I can, I'd like to test more in the controlled laboratory facility, but also to on all four field testing as well. And the picture that's in the article is on one of these, trials that we did on the North Slope when we were trying to validate a CO2 tracer test. And again, this was a very unique collaboration that just kind of happened. Uh, Shell was known for doing a lot of research internal. And 
in several cases, then they would go and commercialize the technology. We knew Shell was looking at using CO2 tracers and lift gas to determine lift points uh, so you wouldn't have to use a slick line crew. And we were patiently waiting for them to finish all their testing to commercialize it so then we could test it. But the problem at the time internally within Shell was they could not find a business unit that was willing to test it to validate it. And again, that was a big milestone for them to commercialize. They had to do the validation. So I phoned up my colleagues at Shell and said, hey, I've got a whole gas of field in the North Slope. You are more than welcome to uh, come to Alaska and do your final validation test in conjunction with us. And in the end, it ended up being a great collaboration, great results that ultimately uh, allowed them to commercialize the technology. So you know, there's different ways that you can approach it, but uh, whether it's in the field or the lab, I, it depends on the, the situation. And I'm hearing too that all of this really offers the opportunity to improve that operational efficiency, um, which in, in turn could reduce reduce some costs. Uh, we're also talking about more reliability of the equipment. And through it all, I'm also hearing a resounding theme of collaboration. There are some companies that would prefer just to keep it internal because they think it's a competitive advantage. But ultimately, the publication and the sharing of these results, yes, they've managed to help the industry, but also, too, they've ended up helping the manufacturers even understand their own equipment and design practices so we can stop focusing or turning out these band-aids and get back to just applying the fundamentals correctly. And there's one discussion point that I have a feeling some of the audience is going to say, well, what about data science? What role does data have to play in all of this? I'm a firm believer that data science will never replace understanding engineering fundamentals. It will supplement, but it won't replace. There's also added pressure on the petroleum schools to be adding data science courses, which could come at the expense of the fundamental engineering courses, because typically to add something, something else has to go. So I also went to Dr. Alan Addy for his perspective on this, and he provided this quote, that from our perspective, industry is learning that a pure data-driven approach has a poor chance to succeed for a variety of reasons that you need to bring some subject matter expertise and engineering understanding of the application and the equipment to improve such a chance. Our current situation that we have now, thankfully, we have data science. And let me explain. When we had our last downturn prior to 2014, it was very cumbersome for companies to evaluate and react quickly in terms of cost reductions and making sure you're doing the right cost reductions in order to survive. And that is not the case today. Our industry has worked hard to consolidate servers, apply uh, data analytics, uh, remote accessibility to so many of our platforms 
that I'm seeing reaction times now just almost light speed uh, faster. So I think that's why we are going to we're going to survive and thrive from this so much better because we have the data science. However, that is still not a replacement for understanding the fundamentals. You mentioned survival and so many in the industry are being hit hard right now. And there are building concerns resonating within oil and gas. What can SPE do And what really is the society's role right here, right now, dealing with this new downturn? This is our time to show not only our members, but the industry, the the importance and the value to what we bring. And I'll talk about it in two segments. One is the technical dissemination. Even though many of us are in our homes and unable to do face-to-face knowledge sharing, we already bring the platform to get that knowledge dissemination out. And we were reacted quickly. We quickly turned our existing DL tours into webinars, getting that out to members. We are starting to, the first one is going to be end of April. It's a career pathway. It's a whole virtual conference, which is actually happening for the second time. But we're also looking at live streaming and all sorts of other virtual events to make sure that we uh, keep that dissemination going, as well as uh, setting up so much stuff through the app. We managed to drop the price of our papers in one petrol. Um, and uh, we're just, I have remote board meetings almost weekly trying to come up with ways that we can still get that dissemination. Now that's from a technical standpoint. Now the other part of it is is this time it's in a very emotional time. There's a lot of uncertainty with our jobs. We have students whose job offers are getting rescinded. We got people being furloughed. In my own case, I took a pay cut. It was mandated pay cut, but in order to help my company survive, I I took it gladly. And again, emotions are high. There's fear. There's uh, concern. There's anger. And within SBE, that's how too with our uh, moderation platforms or a lot of our social media, we're trying to get the soft skill and allowing people to share their concerns. And one thing I love that's going on right now too through social media is people that were negatively impacted during the last downturn, but then survived and had a lot of lessons learned and even found they in the end up being in a better place than they were with the downturn. They're getting their stories out there and it's sending out all these positive messages and really helping to alleviate a lot of the the uncertainty and fear that's going on within the membership. So on the technical and also on the emotional support, I am so proud to be a part of this association because we're there in all fronts. Well said. And for all the resources you just mentioned, we will be including links to those in the description of this podcast, as well as you can find more about the online resources 
on SPE websites and by following the Society of Petroleum Engineers on social media. Final thoughts with Shauna in just a moment. First, one to get over to the question of the month. The research and development technical section will be reviewing SPE's five grand challenges that our industry needs to overcome. What additional technical challenges do you think we as an industry must focus research on? Please send your responses to president at spe.org. The question again was, what additional technical challenges do you think we as an industry must focus research on? You can send those responses to president at spe.org. Shauna, thank you so much again for joining us remotely for this podcast. Really enjoyed um, both sides of the message you were able to provide today. Do you have any final thoughts to share with the audience? It's important we stay positive. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of pause there because again, I'm in I'm in a home with a uh, depressed teenager. So we're really working harder to stay positive in this household. And again, just to stay strong, because we're going to get through this. And I firmly believe we're going to be through this stronger than ever, just like we've resounded uh, times before. Shauna Noonan, 2020 SPE president. Thank you so much for taking time. Wish you and your family the best and to remain safe. Well, thank you, Jason. And again, for you too, stay safe. Let's keep the conversation going. Um, just to reemphasize what Sean was just talking about, connect with us using hashtag SPE podcast, also hashtag we are SPE on social. You can leave comments and talk about the topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes as well. And we try to make it easy to find these podcasts. Just search SPE podcast on Apple or Spotify, anywhere else that you listen to your podcasts. And please leave reviews. We love those five stars and hearing your feedback. We're also online at SPE.org slash podcast. Special thanks to this episode's guest, 2020 SPE President Shauna Noonan. I'm Jason Notoris. Thanks for listening. SPE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible, and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.